This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is away today. I want to point out to you a front page story in the Daily Hampshire Gazette this morning. On the, on the front page, the headline, Dateline Northampton City Fire Chief tapped as State Fire Marshal. This by Alexander McDougall, staff writer, Dateline Northampton. Northampton Fire Chief John Devine was 27 years old when he entered the Massachusetts Firefighting Academy as a new recruit. He joined the Northampton Fire Rescue in 1998. Now, 25 years later, Devine will soon be the highest-ranking firefighter in the state of Massachusetts. He will be the next fire marshal. He's 52 years old. The article goes on to talk about in detail what his training and experiences has been. Congratulations to the fire chief, John Devine. Really, it is an honor. It is an enormous responsibility, and we wish him all the very best in his new position as the chief fire marshal, as the state fire marshal for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. We welcome to the show and back to the show uh, Chris Roman and John Pfeffer, who are together presenting Hope I Die Before I Get Old, the last case of Sherlock Holmes at the at the City Space in East Hampton coming up this weekend. And next, we'll get the details on when. Chris Roman, you have been the uh, critic for the local, I say, ground-level newspaper. Is that fair? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> here to the ground-level newspaper. Here to the ground-level newspaper here for 35 years. Something like that, yeah. Goodness right. great, that's the Valley Advocate, of that's, course. Of course. Um, and and you have written your last column, as I understand it. It came out in the issue, uh, the last issue of last year was my farewell column. And 35 years as a theater critic, of yeah. course, you've been a, uh, a producer and a director as well. And school, congratulations, I'd oh. say 35 well, years, that's a long run. It is a long run, and by the time I finished, it was time. I had, I had done it for a long time. I think I've accomplished a lot. I'm proud of what I was able to support in the, in the Valley theater scene, um, but it was a long time. <laughs> Tell us about your new production with John Pfeffer, who is here with us, mm-hmm. How I die, Hope I Die Before I Get Old. The Last Case of Sherlock Holmes. Again, it will be at City Space in East Hampton, July 21st to the 23rd, the 27th to the 29th, and evening performances and a 3 o'clock matinee on July 24th. Opening this Friday, July 21st, as we just noted, Hope I Die Before I Get Old. That's kind of a depressing title. But The Last <laughs> Case of Sherlock Holmes, that's pretty inspiring. So tell us a bit about what this is, and then, uh, or do you want uh, uh, John to tell us? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of introduce John. Okay, um, great. The, 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 the title and the subtitle together kind of um, encapsulate what the show is about. It's, it's, it's historical. Um, it's about a real Soviet poet and the world's most famous fictional detective. Um, and so we have a real poet as as the a protagonist as as the, yes the main protagonist. Okay, and he killed, my, his name is Vladimir Mayakovsky, and he, he's a real poet. He's a real poet. He was a star of the early Soviet era. Okay, um, but he had a very 
edgy relationship with Stalin, shall we say. And Ooh, that, that sounds uh, not promising. Edgy relationship. <laughs> you can have an edgy relationship with a lot of peace, people, but Stalin, not one of them. Indeed, indeed. Well, and so for several reasons, he killed himself in 1930 oh. at the age of 35. And the premise of the show is that there's no question of who done it or how done it, but, no, but Stalin wants to know why done it. And so he sort of kidnaps Sherlock Holmes from, uh, from his retirement in the, in the English hills to come and solve that mystery. Why did he do it? Okay. I want to know why we want to know this. Why, well, why this play was written. That's a good question, John. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, you know, I've been Who, thinking, in fact, wrote it. I did write it, yes. And, uh, and I play both. Sherlock Holmes and Mayakovsky, so it's and kind of and and let's just uh, play this out, so to speak, uh, just a bit. Um, uh, you, uh, Chris Roman, are directing the person who authored the play and is the actor in it, mm-hmm. yes. who plays a number of different parts. Indeed. Okay, it's, I'm glad we have that all straightened out. Let's go. Let's go back to the author himself, John. Sure. So. I first encountered Mayakovsky when I was studying Russian in the Soviet Union, 1985. That was the first year that Mikhail Gorbachev came to power there. And so it was you know, the time of a loosening of expression, and so lots of things were getting published, including some new poems and plays by Vladimir Mayakovsky. Could you stop there for one second? Sure. What were you doing in Russia? So uh, I was a junior. I was my junior year abroad. So From I, college? From college. What college? Uh, Haverford. Uh, though I was majoring in Russian at Bryn Mawr. Bryn Mawr had a great Russian department. And uh, and do you speak Russian? I do, although I spoke it much better back in 1985 than I do today. Uh, but I was going there to, you know, practice my Russian skills. And uh, But, of course, getting caught up in the whole new political environment in the Soviet Union at that time and encountered this strange poet who was both an icon of the Soviet Union but also embraced by dissidents because he had kind of basically two types of production, things that were extolling the revolution and the Soviet state, and then these kind of dissident works that were questioning the whole Soviet experience. And so that was my first encounter with him. And I, from that moment on, I was like, I have to write something about this intriguing figure. Um, but then we jump forward about, what, 40 years almost, <laughs> And it really was the invasion of Ukraine by Russia that triggered my desire to to move forward with this play now, because I wanted to look at this question of a artist who was caught in this dilemma between collaborating with the state and dissenting against that state, Uh, a position that so many people in Russia have been in over the last 20 years of Vladimir Putin's reign. So this was kind of the precipitating reason for kind of pushing forward with the play right now. So the play, Hope I Die Before I Get Old, the last case of Sherlock Holmes, really does intentionally resonate with Russia's invasion of Ukraine today? Well, what it looks at is the dilemma of a Russian uh, artist and, you know, the, the challenges faced by so many Russians today dealing with a state which is unfortunately ever more like a Stalinist state. 
So instead of moving forward, Russia has moved backward rather quickly. Um, and so that's really what I was, I was looking at. Of course, it, it uh, brings up much of the history and the context and the feel of 1920s and 1930s Soviet Union. But the resonance, yes, is today, the dilemmas, the moral questions that we're struggling with. I understand from what you've said, the second part of the, sub, of, of, of the title, The Last Case of Sherlock Holmes, but the beginning, hope I die before I get old. Um, I'm, I'm a little from? afraid to ask, but in for a dime, in for a dollar. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, uh, some of your listeners will recognize that line as coming from a famous rock song uh, uh, by The Who, My Generation. And the reason it's, it's there, well, it's twofold. One, because Mayakovsky was literally a rock star uh, in the Soviet Union in the 1920s. I mean, his stature as a revolutionary poet, but also the way he kind of projected on stage. He was very much a kind of uh, mass popular figure and very rebellious. And when I looked at Mayakovsky's past, I realized that basically he and his friends in the 19-teens, before the revolution, were effectively the Rolling Stones of their generation or the who of their generation. They went to art school. They were constantly on stage you know, basically uh, offending people, uh, doing the, the equivalent of smashing their guitars, all in an effort to kind of shake things up and transform culture as quickly as possible. So this hope I die before I get old, you know, refers to that, but it also refers to Mayakovsky's perspective about how youth was so important for him. Getting old was really a challenge. And as he got older, that became a significant obstacle that he was not sure how to overcome. This is a one-person play. You are the author. You are the actor. You play different parts. Tell us about that, and I'd like to know in particular, how do you inhabit different, different roles, one after the other, and really almost contemporaneously on stage? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So this is my 12th play. I've done you know, nearly uh, more than half of them have been one-man shows. And to be honest with you, just doing two characters, that's kind of easy. Because in past plays, I've done six characters, seven characters, kind of rapidly cycling between them. This time around, we are using a kind of convention of disappearing behind the stage, behind the wall, and transforming into another character before coming back out again as a kind of scene change. Uh, the challenge, yes, there's definitely a challenge. We're talking about two very different characters. Mayakovsky, passionate, revolutionary, leads with his heart. Sherlock Holmes, kind of cool, logical, deductive, uh, very different characters. Uh, obviously, one's Russian, one's British. Uh, but there's a kind of joy as an actor in being able to kind of bounce back and forth between these two very different characters. It's, it's a fabulous opportunity. You've told, told, just told us about uh, performing many one-person one plays. Where have you done these? And where do you live? Mm -hmm. Where do you live? I live here in Northampton. And, uh, where, and where have these performances been? Well, I've been here in Northampton as of a year ago. So prior to that, for 20 years, I lived in Washington, D.C. and performed my plays in and around D.C., though I also brought them to New York for various one-man show festivals 
and brought our last show virtually because of COVID to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Oh, wonderful place to be. Congratulations on that. I'd like to go back, if I might, to Chris Roman. You are directing the author and the actor, uh, which I suspect is, well, I don't know, but it strikes me as that's a bit awkward. I mean, he knows the play pretty well. So how are you directing? How does that work? Well, we haven't killed each other yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it, it's, I've never done Notwithstanding that. the title, how I, ha- I hope I die before I get old. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Um, although that's, the, last, the last part of that is too late. Um, th- this is the first one-man show that I've directed, and it's a, it's a challenge. Um, I like to tell people that this is a one-man show with four characters and three actors, because in addition to Holmes and Mayakovsky, there are two of the women in his life who appear on screen via video. Um, they are per- per- portrayed by Jaris Hansen and Hero Marguerite, um, and it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of magical that they, they appear on screen, and it looks like they're looking at him and talking to him. I was, I was surprised how well it worked out. Um, so... So there are kind of four characters in this play. There are four characters in the play. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So well, let me let me ask let me ask you this, Chris Roman. Um, this play is being performed at City Space in East Hampton, mm-hmm. the, the Blue Room, again July twenty first to the twenty third, and the twenty seventh through the twenty ninth at eight o'clock. Twenty fourth, there's a matinee at three o'clock. I, what's that space like to direct in, and to perform in? It. It, it, honestly, it's a challenge because it's, it's a small room that's not made up like a theater. All the seats are on the floor, and we've tried to keep everything high. He, he only sits down once um, in either of his characters, um, and, and there, there's a couple of sightline issues. But it's, it's actually a great place to perform because the city space people are so great. And our stage manager, and because there's only three of us doing this whole show, she's also um, the lighting person and the sound designer and everything else. It's Nikki Beck, who is the Valley's premier stage manager. We're really, really lucky to have her. Yeah, we've got got stars like you uh, uh, involved in this production. Uh, Let me ask you this. Where do people get tickets? they can get tickets at Eventbrite. Uh, you can just go online. Uh, very easy to, to order those tickets. Yeah, and probably at the door as well. Okay. T- tickets are $15. We are speaking with Chris Roman and John Pfeffer. We are going to return more about Hope I Die Before I Get Old, the last case of Sherlock Holmes, right after this. Just because we get around More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. High school is a time of discovery, of exploring the world and shaping your destiny. What happens in high school has a deep and lasting effect. At the Hartsbrook School in Hadley, that means discovering more than the right answers to test questions. Textbooks give way to learning through experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsbrook students take their science studies into the woods or social studies into the community, working for food justice. Hartsbrook students connect with students worldwide with the 
the Model UN. And senior year, there's the year-long senior project. Each student chooses something to work on long-term with intensity. Also senior year, the class goes on a week-long community service trip. Hartsbrook students cultivate an unwavering sense that they can take action in the world and can handle adversity. The Hartsbrook School, on a 55-acre campus in Hadley. New students welcome in any grade. Schedule a visit on the Hartsbrook School website. Just call or email the admissions office. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Let's recap how many ways Franklin First Federal Credit Union makes life simpler for you. Checking accounts? It's totally free. Plus, we have teen and senior checking options. Savings? Think traditional. Plus, HSAs, money markets, club accounts, and CDs. Convenience? How about direct deposit? Real-time payment? Overdraft protection? Free online banking and mobile deposits. Life simplified. Visit franklinfirst.org and learn more. franklinfirst.org, Franklin First Federal Credit Union, member NCUA. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Chris Roman and John Pfeffer. We are talking about Hope I Die Before I Get Old, the last case of Sherlock Holmes, which will be performed by John at City Space in East Hampton, July 23rd to the tw- 21st to the 23rd, the 27th to the 29th at 8 o'clock. July 24th, there's a 3 o'clock matinee, and tickets are easily available. At, just go to East Hampton City Space, and you'll see the link to buy the tickets right there. I would be interested in a number of aspects about this. Dan, you brought up a uh, point during, during the break. Perhaps you want to repose that question to uh, John and Chris? Uh, sure. I, so I wanted to understand more about this Russian character from uh, the Stalin era and how it relates to our time. So I guess is the character being uh, shifted from the 1930s to now? Explain the, the character role here. Sure. So we actually roll back uh, Mayakovsky's life from the moment where he commits suicide all the way back to the most important moment of his life, basically, in 1912. Uh, but he's being guided in this kind of reconstruction of his life by, well, I won't reveal you know, the, yeah. the punchline here, but by a person um, who then also tells him what happens after he dies, which brings both Mayakovsky and everybody else up to the present moment. So it's, a, it's an opportunity for Mayakovsky to realize what his legacy was, both positive and negative, mm-hmm. and for the audience as well to connect you know, what what they just saw in his life to what's happening today. Mm. So I believe, uh, Chris Roman, that I truncated your answer to the question of uh, what it's like to direct the author, who is also the actor, albeit there are uh, other people who appear uh, through technology in this in this play, and I would like to hear the answer because you did say, well, you haven't killed each other yet. I appreciate that. You're both still here. But I'd like to know more about that because it really sounds complicated to me because you as the director have a vision for what the play is supposed to be. And I suspect that the author does as well. Well, 
in this case especially, um, as a director, I try to to achieve the the playwright's intention and vision, and this one especially, it's it's really John's baby. Um, he emailed me early in the year, uh, saying, "I'm doing this show. Uh, would you like to look at the script? And would you like to direct it?" And I looked at the script, and I thought, "This is really, really interesting, <laughs> because there's you know so much going on, so anachronistic, but so pointed." Um, and so I was in Australia for a couple of months, and we. Uh, emailed and Zoomed back and forth. The script was still in development when I got it, and so we worked on it back and forth, back and forth. And the rehearsals have been one-on-one, and we, I described it once as a partnership. I think it really is. You know, we, um, sometimes he gets the last word, and sometimes I get the last word, and sometimes we argue for a little <clears throat> bit, but it's, it, I think it's worked out okay. <laughs> yeah, well, it's good because uh, cage boxing wouldn't work on this one. <laughs> a partnership kind of does. I'd like to know this from both of you. Uh, and le- let me start with you, you, John, if I might. You wrote the play. Uh, you experienced Russia. You have, I take it, very deep uh, commitment to the subject matter here. Um, what have you learned by working as the actor in the play that you didn't know before you started working with Chris Roman, who is, I think, uh, deservedly known as one of the best theater people in the Valley? Absolutely. Um, well, just to, and to add to what Chris was saying, you know, when I, when I go through this process, and I've done this now, as I said, about a dozen times, I have, a, I have two hats. I have the hat as the writer, and, you know, I, we talk over the script and script changes, and I'm just the writer. But then as soon as we go into the acting part, I put on my actor hat and I listen to my director, you know, because I'm the actor and I have to follow what the director says and follow the director's vision. Yeah, yes and no. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've talked I'm, to a fair number of actors on the show and they all say that, but then the directors kind of look at them and roll their eyes. Well, well, like I, like I said, it, it, it's a partnership all the way through, and we're ta- we're still talking about the script as of last week, and and uh, and performances and stuff. So it really is a partnership. I'm really glad that that happened. I, I would agree with that, and and yes, of course, there's still some discussions about the script. But as an actor, it's incredibly useful to simply say, "Look, I do not know everything about this play. I might have written it, but." I don't know all of the meanings. I don't know all of the possible interpretations. And I certainly don't know how to stage it properly. Um, and I certainly, as an actor, am not exactly sure where I should be walking and what I should be doing while I'm saying these lines. It's so incredibly useful to be able to say, hey, I don't know. I mean, throughout the script writing, I'm, I'm saying, I know, I know, I know we have to do this. I know we have to do this. To finally say, hey, I don't know, and somebody else knows, and it's so nice to be able to follow orders. <laughs> Chris Roman, I have the same question for you. What did you learn that you didn't expect? Well, I, I didn't know what to expect, so I had no expectations of working with one person on a one-person show. Um, I've learned that it's challenging and interesting and is a, a completely different experience than working with a cast of four or eight or 15, as I've done with Shakespeare. Uh, so I've, I've, I've learned a lot. Um, I should also say that this is not only a four-character play. It's really kind of a five-character play because a lot of the action is illustrated or backed by projections on the screen, not just the two women who appear, but historical scenes that, that bring us back into, into the era. 
You've produced, you've directed uh, productions for Silverthorne Silverthorne Theater and the Majestic Theater and the Suffield Players. And I would be interested to know whether there's one thing different about directing a one-person play, albeit there are other characters who appear in various ways, that's really different from directing a cast. Yeah, the difference is the, the one person. I mean, when I'm directing a, a play with, with a, an ensemble, my job is to create that ensemble, to work together to fulfill my and or the playwright's vision. Uh, with, with John, it's been a, like I, like I keep saying, it's a partnership. Uh, we're, we're, we're forging this together. Tickets are available at East Hampton City Space. You go to the, it pops right up, uh, How I Die Before I Get Old, the last case of Sherlock Holmes. It sounds amazing. It just sounds amazing. Uh, I, I don't know how, how long the city space has been open for productions, but I expect this is one of, one of the originals. Am I right about that? I don't know for sure. I th- it's certainly been going as a venue, sometimes for performances, sometimes for dance events, for over a year. The, the, the city space is creating a wonderful 300-seat black box theater upstairs in the Old Town Hall. And this is the, the temporary space to put on things. Well, it sounds really exciting. I, I, I really, really look forward to seeing this play, How I Die Before I Get Old, The Last Case of Sherlock Holmes. Chris Roman is the director. John Pfeffer is the author and the actor. And congratulations to you both. It really sounds amazing. Thank you for yeah. bringing this to the Valley. I should ask you, John, you moved here a year ago. What brought you here? Well, I, I moved up here largely to be nearer to my in-laws, uh, one of whom lives in Vermont, one who lives in Connecticut, and obviously Northampton is pretty much in the middle, so we managed to balance the two, the mother-in-law and the father-in-law. So Northampton is a great kind of meeting ground for, for both. Well, we are lucky you are here. Thank you so much for that move. It is our great pleasure, joy, and luck that you are. Hope I die before I get old. The last case of Sherlock Holmes. It will be produced at City Space in East Hampton, July 21 to the 23rd, coming right up for the opening. There are 8 o'clock evening performances, also the 27th through the 29th, a matinee on July 24th. Tickets available at City Space. Thank you both so very much. Break a leg. Great. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. I fly to you Much wiser since my goodbye to you I've traveled the world You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Recent flooding hit the Western Mass area hard, but it hit our most vulnerable community members the hardest. People living in tents along the river have been displaced, and the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts will receive fewer donations from local farms around the harvest season. Executive Director Andrew Morehouse. We will see a dip in in local agriculture, either donated or or that we can buy because of the flooding. We don't know how much yet, uh, but we definitely are going to see a decline.
In a typical year, the food bank purchases around a half million pounds of local produce with money from the State Department of Agricultural Resources Mass Grow Program. Those same farms usually donate another half million pounds of food. But since the recent flood events, many of those partnering farms have less local produce to offer. Of the dozens of farms the food bank purchases from, Morehouse said at least seven have been impacted by the heavy rain this year. The Hilltown Community Health Center is one step closer to a new center at Smith Vocational. The organization received almost $1 million toward the project from the Executive Office of Health and Human Services. The Smith Vocational Health Center will cost approximately $2.5 million to build and will be one of 42 school-based health centers in the state. The community has shown support for the families in the emergency shelter at the Days Inn Hotel in Greenfield by providing an abundance of donations. The city announced yesterday they are temporarily pausing the acceptance of new donations due to space limitations and will notify the public as soon as they can accept donations again. Partly to mostly sunny today, lower humidity, warm, a high of 84 to 88. Evening temperatures will be in the 70s and low 80s with scattered clouds tonight and an overnight low of 58 to 64. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, slight chance of an afternoon shower, 84 to 88. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rachi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El Departamento de Justicia instó a un juez el jueves a rechazar los intentos de Donald Trump de posponer su juicio por documentos clasificados, diciendo que no había fundamento para una demora abierta solicitada por sus abogados. Los fiscales federales propusieron el mes pasado un juicio el 11 de diciembre para Trump, quien está acusado de 37 delitos graves relacionados con el mal manejo de documentos clasificados en su propiedad de Mar-a-Lago, aunque la fecha real dependerá del juez. Los abogados de Trump respondieron esta semana con una solicitud de postergación. No propusieron una fecha específica, pero dijeron que el caso se refería a cuestiones legales novedosas y que proceder con un juicio dentro de los seis meses es irrazonable y resultaría en un error judicial. El jueves, los fiscales del equipo fiscal especial de Jack Smith respondieron pidiéndole a la jueza federal de distrito, Eileen Cannon, que no pospusiera el juicio más allá de la fecha de diciembre que recomendaron. En otras informaciones, la Agencia contra el Cáncer de la Organización Mundial de la Salud ha considerado que el endulzante aspartame, que se encuentra en las bebidas gaseosas dietéticas e innumerables otros alimentos, es una posible causa de cáncer, mientras que un grupo de expertos separado que analizó la misma evidencia dijo que todavía considera que el sustituto del azúcar es seguro en cantidades limitadas. Los diferentes resultados de las revisiones coordinadas se publicaron el viernes temprano. El aspartame se une a una categoría con más de otros 300 posibles agentes causantes de cáncer. Sin embargo, la guía sobre el uso del endulzante no está cambiando. El aspartame es un endulzante artificial bajo en calorías que es unas 200 veces más dulce que el azúcar. Es un polvo blanco e inodoro y el edulcolorante artificial más utilizado en el mundo. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. As I mentioned, Buzz Eisenberg is away today. This is a segment that we call Writing Wrongs with Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. Welcome back to the show, Carol. We're so pleased you can be with us today. I've been wanting you on the show ever since the Supreme Court decided 303 Creative, a, a case in which the Supreme Court 
made remarkable pronouncements about the rights of LGBTQ persons. It's a case that involves free speech, which, of course, the ACLU is known for protecting. I would appreciate it if you would give us your description of this case, and then we'll get to, we'll get to what the Supreme Court decided, why it decided it, and what it means for LGBTQ rights going forward. Carol Rose, help us understand this case, please. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. And it's so great to be here. You know, tis the season of the Supreme Court decision toward the end of June. So we're still analyzing what the court did. Um, you know, they always drop their biggest decisions right before they go out of session uh, their, when their term ends in June, the end of June. So uh, this is one of the ones that we anticipated coming, but we're shocked and dismayed nonetheless. Um, so the case involves a woman named Lori Smith out in Colorado who said that she didn't want to make wedding cake, wedding websites, not wedding cakes, wedding websites for same-sex couples um, because of her religious beliefs as a Christian and that doing so would be compelled speech. Now, uh, Lori Smith did not do this on her own. She was actually represented by a group called the Alliance Defending Freedom. Now, this is the same legal group that's arguing against medication abortion and ongoing litigation um, and, and other things. So they're underwriting a lot of these um, efforts by the extreme right to try to get the court to carve back the rights that we've won, whether we're talking about uh, reproductive rights, whether we're talking about LGBTQ rights um, and similar cases. So that, so this is the context by which this decision came down. Um, and it was a majority decision authored by Gorsuch, um, joined by Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. So the usual suspects as you would. And what they ruled is that a business that sells any kind of very customized or expressive service, like a website, cannot be compelled to express messages with which they don't agree. So it's the concept of compelled speech. Um, and so we can unpack why that's so dangerous, um, because it really is an attack on the requirement um, in public accommodations that a, a business that's open to the public in general may not discriminate against any customers based on their race, their gender orientation, their gender, etc. Um, so the good news only, if there is some, is that the court seemed to almost catch its breath and realize how it could open this door and try to limit its ruling to the facts of this case. Um, and so it didn't say that businesses can deny other forms of service or verbally assault customers based on their protected status, but rather just said um, this is really limited to very, if you would customize or bespoke expressive businesses like, you know, uh, muralists or speechwriters, things like that. Well, I, I would like to ask you to take a deeper dive into that concept for us, because when a court says this holding is restricted to the facts of this case, that's kind of true for all cases. Conservative courts in particular are not in the business, theoretically, of making grand pronouncements of what the law will be. They're deciding the case in front of them. And I was thinking just last night about how the Second, Second Amendment case, cases have expanded from an original case where the court said there is an individual right to have a gun in your home for self-defense. And now in the coming term, the court will decide whether there's any right, given how fundamental the right to have a gun is, uh, apparently, mm -hmm. uh, to whether a court, a local court, 
has any authority to restrict gun ownership for persons accused of domestic violence. That case is going in front of the Supreme Court. Cases have a way of expanding their reach. So when this court- Yeah, I mean, and it's really disingenuous, you know? I mean, that's what I was saying. I think the court attempted to try to limit the contours of, of 303 Creative, but really, this is the first time that the Supreme Court has actually permitted business that's open to the public to actually deny services. Um, in defiance of state non-discrimination laws. And and Justice Sotomayor, who wrote the dissent and was joined by Justices Kagan and Jackson, um, wrote that today, the court for the first time in, in its history grants a business open to the public, a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class. Um, and then she goes and she offers, you know, during the Jim Crow era, um, that when and she writes, when civil rights and women's rights movements sought equality in public life, some public establishments refused. Some even claimed, based on sincere religious beliefs, a constitutional right to discriminate. And the brave justices who once sat on this court decisively rejected those claims. So that's really um, a compelling warning, almost a Cassandra-like warning of the dangers that lie ahead there are, is going to be additional litigation and there are going to be efforts to try to push the law for people to be able to say, your ability to have equal rights under the law. And we, the ACLU, we filed a law, uh, an amicus brief um, in this case, urging the court to reject the challenge to the Colorado civil rights law. And we're going to continue to fight these cases, both here in Massachusetts and in every state in the nation. Carol Rose, as the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts, you are often asked about free speech. And this case, 303 Creative, has been characterized as posing a dispute between free speech rights, the free speech rights of the website creator, and Mm -hmm. anti-discrimination and public accommodation laws. Is that a mischaracterization of the case? Yeah, no, I actually think it is a mischaracterization. And the ACLU does do a lot of free speech work, and we do a lot of equality work. And it's really quite rare that the the rights are actually in conflict. It's usually trumped up to be that way, so to speak. Um, You know, and I think what's really amazing about this case is the court went out of its way to find a case like this. I mean, Lori, it's it's come out since the case especially um, was decided that Lori Smith never even had a request by anyone, by any same-sex couple, to do their website. Um, this was a theoretical case. And, and one of the most fundamental things in law that, that, that people who, who are lawyers know is that you have to have an actual case in controversy. You're not supposed to bring a theoretical case. Um, you know, the Supreme Court is not a law school final. Um, they're not hypotheticals. We're supposed to have actual cases and controversies. And in fact, Lori Smith was never requested by anyone uh, to do this. So it's the court really went out of its way to try to find a case in which they could build on their desire to roll back equal protection for people based on a protected status, such as LGBTQ status, uh, women's rights, racial justice, these kinds of things. So this is part of a larger um, effort to roll back basic civil rights that we have fought and won in this country, and we have to stop it. And that's where the ACLU is working so hard in every state, in the courts, in the state courts, as well as in the federal courts, to try to make sure that state rights, if the federal government court, the federal courts won't protect us, the states can. And and I'm pleased to say that Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell, after the case came out, said that if anything, our work is affected by today's decision um, because the, well, basically she said our anti-discrimination laws remain strong and in effect. 
here in Massachusetts. So right now, people still should know, you may not discriminate. If you have a business that's open to the public, you may not discriminate under the Massachusetts laws, even if the federal laws are weakened by this decision. Carlos, I want to go back to something you just commented on, which is the requirement that a federal court, the Supreme Court in particular, rule only on an actual case or an actual controversy. That comes, of course, from the constitutional provisions that create the Supreme Court. The Constitution is just absolutely clear that a theoretical, a hypothetical uh, case that could come up is not ripe, is not appropriate for the Supreme Court to adjudicate. It just does not give advisory opinions. The Supreme Court doesn't do that. And yet in this case, the Supreme Court essentially created a hypothetical and then answered the question, which seems to me to be a reversal of what had been the hoped-for advances in the Supreme Court in protecting LGBTQ rights. What has happened? Why are they doing this? Well, we, you know, I mean, this court we now know is the scofflaw court. You know, history always gives monikers to things. Maybe this will be known as the scofflaw era of the Supreme Court. Um, because whether we're talking about ethics violations by the individual justices or whether we're talking about um, these really poorly disguised ideological decisions that are coming down from the court, um, there really is a crisis of credibility in the court. And I think it's going to be important that another branch of government uh, step in and begin to clean it up. Because I think when the public loses faith in the Supreme Court, especially, but in the courts in general, um, you know, you really begin to see a decline in our democracy. And, you know, and Justice Ponser wrote a wonderful piece just last Sunday, I think, in the New York Times, talking about the importance of ethics and credibility for judges across the board. Um, but when it when the rot starts at the top, it becomes a problem. Michael Ponser, of course, is the longtime now senior uh, judge for the Western District of Massachusetts, and the article did appear in last Sunday's New York Times. And if any of our listeners have not read it, I urge you to go read what Judge Ponzer wrote. We are speaking with Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts. We've been talking about the 303 creative decision, that is the name of the case, from the Supreme Court. I want to continue this conversation, and I want to ask Carol Rose to explain to us how this decision comes down to what the court viewed as compelled speech for the website maker, even though she wasn't being compelled to do anything, and not a religious belief case. Right. Well, so there was a previous case, people have heard of the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, that was based on religious beliefs, and the court, on a narrow ruling, basically ducked the question. The compelled speech argument actually comes out of a New Hampshire case, Woolsey, um, where somebody said they didn't want to have to have their license plate say live free or die. And the state said, no, you actually do have to have that, sort of missing the point of the motto, live free or die, um, <laughs> which is pretty funny, pretty ironic. Anyway, but the Supreme Court ruled that the government cannot compel us to speak um, when we don't want to say something. Um, this isn't really a compelled speech case, though, because she's open to the business. So you can't say, I'm not going to wait on people uh, because I don't like their race because I'm being compelled to ask them if I can take their order. I mean, it, it, the speech is incidental to the business, and I think that it's really important. Um, the court attempts to rule on a compelled speech theory and thus to narrow uh, its holding to very expressive businesses, you know, like I said, speech writing or, or movie directing or something like that. Um, and we'll have to see how that plays out. I think that where that line is going to be drawn um, is going to be litigated um, 
for years to come. We are speaking with Carol Rose. She is the ex executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union in Massachusetts. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back in less than two minutes, we're going to talk about a major case here in western Massachusetts. Stay with us. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside, get a beach read. Like Happy Place by Emily Henry. Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads for the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice, and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts, has been for, I believe, some 20 years. We are now going to turn our attention to a case that it will be in front of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in September for argument. It was a case filed by the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts at the single justice session of the Supreme Judicial Court. Uh, technically for the county of Suffolk, but we don't need to go into those weeds. It was assigned to, randomly, to, to Justice uh, Wendlandt, uh, who decided the case, well, sort of decided the case, which is what she was supposed to do, and then referred the case to the Supreme Judicial Court for decision. It is a major case involving overwhelming misconduct by the Springfield Police Department, it was the subject of a Department of Justice, a federal Department of Justice investigation and report. And, well, it is a major consequence to Springfield and to the police departments and to 
district attorney's offices across Massachusetts. Carol Rose, please tell us about that case. Great, wonderful, thank you, Bill. Um, so this is a case about transparency and police accountability. And as you said, it's centered in Springfield, Massachusetts. So in, in July of 2020, the US Department of Justice, the Civil Rights Division, um, issued a report and following a comprehensive investigation and, and announced that it had reasonable cause to believe that the, narcotic, the Narcotics Bureau of Springfield, uh, Massachusetts, the police department, engages in a pattern or practice of using excessive force in violation of the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution. Um, they looked at over 100,000 pages of written policies and procedures and training materials and internal reports, video footage, et cetera, and interviewed um, Springfield Police Department officers, supervisors, et cetera, met with community members. Um, and so it was a pretty thorough investigation and they issued this report um, in the hopes, I think, that there would be an effort to change the policies and practices um, and procedures of the Springfield Police Department. But then nothing happened. Um, you know, the, 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 there has been no investigation by the Commonwealth, by the state of Massachusetts into this, even though over the, it, this misconduct lasted for a period of, I think, eight years. Um, and so how many people were potentially convicted, wrongfully convicted, um, because their case was achieved because of abuse by the Springfield Police Department. And, and some of the types of cases, I mean, it was, there were more than 23 incidents reported. Um, the physical, mental, and racial abuse of teenagers in Palmer. There was video surveillance showing a narcotics detective threatening to kill and to plant drugs on teenagers. Um, you know, it, it was just crazy. There was another one of a plainclothes police officer kicking one of these teenage suspects. There were reports of assaults on black men by Springfield Police Departments out, uh, outside of a bar, uh, the punching of a 17-year-old, um, breaking somebody's nose with multiple punches. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Um, it's really shocking um, and really concerning. We live in a democracy. Transparency is important. We need to know what's happening. And then we need to hold people who violate civil rights and civil liberties to account. Um, and yet, and yet, no agency, no entity, um, including the Hamden County District Attorney's Office, which actually has been prosecuting people made on the assertions by Springfield Police Department's um, officers, they haven't followed up. Um, there hasn't been a full investigation. So the ACLU, along with um, Committee for Public Counsel Service and other groups, basically have filed a suit seeking a full investigation um, and that any evidence that was obtained through beating someone or planting evidence, these kinds of things, needs to be turned over to criminal defense lawyers um, and so that they can do their job, which is to make sure that people have due process under the law. Uh, this is a case that we've also filed with the law firm of Goldston and Stores, uh, which is a wonderful uh, Massachusetts-based law firm and has done yeoman's work in helping to uh, bring these, the need for this investigation to public attention. Carol Rose, we have just a little over a minute left, but I would appreciate your thoughts on this. I think it strikes most people that if they get a report from the U.S. Department of Justice saying there is a pattern and practice in the police department that you are effectively using to prosecute people of violence and lying and filing false reports, that what the you would want to do, what you, the district attorney, would want to do more than anything else is investigate what's happened so we can make sure that we're not using false testimony in cases and so defense lawyers have the right to prepare their cases and so on. And yet in Springfield, they've done nothing. They have not asked anyone to investigate. They have not investigated. And I'd appreciate your thoughts about that from a systemic point of view. 
All right. I mean, just as a matter of law, district attorneys actually have a constitutional and legal responsibility to investigate police misconduct and then to disclose that evidence to defendants and their attorneys. Um, that's why one of our clients is the wonderful bar advocate organization, Hamden County Lawyers for Justice. Um, but it's been three the public years. Defenders. Yeah, since the Department of Justice issued its report, right? Um, three years and there's been no investigation. There's, It's been under investigated and undisclosed by the Hamden County District Attorney's Office. After three years, I think Bay Staters deserve a full investigation so we can determine the extent of the misconduct by the Springfield police officers and ensure that anyone who was wrongfully convicted because of that misconduct has their record expunged. The case is Graham versus the uh, District Attorney's Office for Hamden County. Hamden County District Attorney's Office will be argued in uh, September. By way of disclosure, I have been involved in the case. Carol Rose, thank you so very much for your time and your insights. We really appreciate you and all your work. Thank you, Bill. It's an honor. Want to know more about local history, literature, and education? Hilltown Families bi-monthly Learning Ahead Cultural Itineraries offer an easy way to delve into Western Mass culture and traditions. These new seasonal itineraries are produced in collaboration with a humanities scholar and community education expert, offering ways for self-directed teens and lifelong learners to engage in learning that helps shape a sense of place. Funded by a year-long grant from Mass Humanities, you can download guides anytime, free of charge, at Hilltown Families. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. A legal challenge is getting underway in Texas this hour to one of the strictest abortion bans in the country. Reporter Chris Fox has details from Austin. The lawsuit filed by 13 Texas women who were denied abortions despite life-threatening complications to their pregnancies. The only exception to the state's abortion ban. Their lead attorney, Molly Duane, says the doctors refused for fear they'll go to prison. Despite multiple repeated requests, Texas has done nothing to clarify the scope of its abortion ban. Former President Trump got another round of bad news from court. In New York today, a federal judge has rejected his request for a new trial. In the civil case brought by writer E. Jean Carroll, she was awarded $5 million over claims Mr. Trump sexually assaulted her in a department store dressing room. The ruling comes a day after Mr. Trump announced he was informed he's under investigation by the Justice Department for trying to interfere with the results of the 2020 election. Former federal prosecutor Tom Dupree. The special counsel would not have sent a target letter and would not be apparently poised to actually bring a prosecution against former President Trump if he didn't think he had a winning hand. Turns out the U.S. soldier detained in North Korea was about to be sent back to the U.S. after spending time in a South Korean jail for assault. 
assault. Sarah Leslie was in the same tour group as Travis King when he crossed the border. Suddenly I noticed a guy running, guy dressed in black, running for what looked like full gas towards the North Korean side. And my first thought was, what an absolute idiot. I assumed he was sort of getting a mate to film it for some kind of TikTok stunt or something like that. As temperatures across the country reach record highs, some workers in South Florida might be getting new protections. Here's CBS's Jim Crisula. Members of the Miami-Dade County Commission have given initial approval to the so-called K-Calor Ordinance. That's Spanish for how hot. It sets new heat standards for outdoor workers. Labor advocate Oscar Leandro. There's an urgency for a countywide heat standard that would guarantee water, shade, and rest for outdoor workers here in Miami-Dade. Companies that repeatedly fail to offer the outdoor worker protections could be fined up to $3,000 per day. Cheryl Crow has joined a growing group calling out country music star Jason Aldean after he dropped a controversial music video. It was shot in front of a courthouse in Columbia, Tennessee, where a black man was lynched in the 1920s. Crow tweeted, even people in small towns are sick of violence. Aldean denies the lyrics are anti-Black Lives Matter. The Dow is up 187 points. This is CBS News. Find great hires fast with Indeed. Their end-to-end hiring solution makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. For right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free reputation report card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. It was a night of offense in baseball unlike any other in one. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Recent flooding hit the Western Mass area hard, but it hit our most vulnerable community members the hardest. People living in tents along the river have been displaced, and the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts will receive fewer donations from local farms around the harvest season. Executive Director Andrew Morehouse. We will see a dip in, in local agriculture, either donated or, or that we can buy because of the flooding. We don't know how much yet, uh, but we definitely are going to see a decline. In a typical year, the food bank purchases around a half million pounds of local produce with money from the State Department of Agricultural Resources Mass Grow Program. Those same farms usually donate another half million pounds of food. But since the recent flood events, many of those partnering farms have less local produce to offer. Of the dozens of farms the food bank purchases from, Morehouse said at least seven have been impacted by the heavy rain this year. A Hilltown Community Health Center is one step closer to a new center at Smith Vocational. The organization received almost $1 million toward the project from the Executive Office of Health and Human Services. The Smith Vocational Health Center will cost approximately $2.5 million to build and will be one of 42 school-based health centers in the state. The community has shown support for the families in the emergency shelter at the Days Inn Hotel in Greenfield by providing an abundance of donations. 
The city announced yesterday they are temporarily pausing the acceptance of new donations due to space limitations and will notify the public as soon as they can accept donations again. Partly to mostly sunny today, lower humidity, warm, a high of 84 to 88. Evening temperatures will be in the 70s and low 80s with scattered clouds tonight and an overnight low of 58 to 64. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, slight chance of an afternoon shower, 84 to 88. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. Buzz Eisenberg is away today. We are joined by Suzanne Love. She is a nurse in the emergency room at uh, Bay State Franklin, uh, formerly known as the Franklin Medical Center. And she is with us today because I want to talk to her and we have wanted to talk to her about testimony that she recently gave before a joint committee of the Massachusetts legislature regarding mental health services that are available and more specifically are not available here in Western Massachusetts. Suzanne Love, thank you so much. I was about to say Suzanne Love. Calling with an urge. Well, that was interesting technological <laughs> failure. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I hope Suzanne Love will call us back immediately so that we can continue. She, her testimony was very interesting, and I have read it. And Suzanne Love, I think you're back on the phone. Are you with us? I'm with you. Thank you. Terrific. Thank you. So uh, I'd like to hear, and I want our listeners to know about the testimony that you just gave at the Massachusetts legislature very recently but before we do that, I'd like our listeners to know what it is you do and why you know about emergency care for persons in need of mental health medical attention. Okay. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to come on your show and talk about this subject. It's really important for several reasons. There's layers in our community of people who receive care. And we likely all know people who have needed medical care in a hospital setting, but we also likely all know people who have needed some mental health care, either in a hospital setting on an acute basis or an outpatient setting. And the ER is the avenue to get not only medical, but mental health care. Well, let me, let me stop you there and ask you that, because what I was fascinated about about your testimony, and <clears throat> we should note that you were uh, testifying as a representative of the Massachusetts Nurses Association, as well as an emergency department nurse. Mm-hmm. When if someone comes into the ER uh, and they have a, uh, 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 a, a, a serious medical problem, uh, many times you can kind of see it there's the wound, or here's this spike temperature, or here's, here's, here's the problem. But with a mental health issue, it's not nearly as clear what the underlying problem is. And I'm wondering how treating someone who appears at the ER with a mental health crisis is different from people who appear at the ER and are brought to the ER with a physical crisis. Tell us about that, if you would. Sure. It's it's different in several ways, but it's also similar in that the triage nurse, as a triage nurse, 
the very first assessment you make of someone is everyone goes into just one of two very big categories, well or not well. And then your care goes from there. If someone's not well, everyone else in the lobby can wait. Everyone else who's well is waiting, and that person's coming ahead of everyone else, no matter how long the other people have been there. And in that first, we call it the across-the-room assessment. You often can tell if someone's having a mental health crisis. It's on their face. It's in their body language. As they're approaching the desk, you can see it. But then they come there, and there are those people who sort of surprise you when they say, I'm here. Sometimes they say, I want to talk to crisis, which is what we sort of casually call clinical support options. They do the assessments. They take over the mental health portion of care on the emergency basis. And when someone comes in with a mental health concern, their safety is our first priority. That's part of what, that's why they go ahead of everybody else. This person coming to us saying, I'm having a mental health crisis. Most of the time, they're coming because they themselves have recognized they are at risk of harming themselves and they need some help to prevent that. And so we, first off, we have them wanted by security. We want to make sure, yeah, you've come to the ER for care. We want to make sure you don't have something on you that you could use to hurt yourself. So we, our first priority for these people is their physical safety. And that's why they go with everybody else. Okay, so let's, let's, let's stop there for a second. Let's say someone comes to the ER in a mental health crisis. They're either brought themselves to the ER or someone else has brought them there, uh, and you would make an assessment, and you say, yes, this person is in need of mental health uh, treatment and assistance now. What do you do? Where do, you, do they go into the hospital? Are they sent somewhere else? What happens? Because we, are, we have to assess them. Everybody gets an assessment if you're there for mental health or medical health. So you start off with everyone's use a doctor. Because if you are suicidal but you also have pneumonia, we have to treat the pneumonia first before you go into a mental health unit. So we make sure people are medically stable. And that doesn't take long. Once we figure that out, then we call clinical support options. And they come over and do a bedside assessment and an in-depth conversation with this person to find out the level of care they might need. Because not everyone comes who presents to the ER saying they're suicidal necessarily needs to go to a locked psychiatric unit. Some people can go to an outpatient setting. There's a service at the hospital called the Partial Hospitalization Program. And people go there for... I think it's a two-week time period, and you go pretty much business hours, but you go home at night. You're getting the intensive group therapy and individual therapy. Medications are being looked at to see if they're appropriate for you. But if you're safe to be on your own at home, then you can go to the partial program. Maybe you go, need to go to an inpatient unit. So that's determined, and then the work of the bed search begins to find a, a, a bed on a psychiatric unit that is appropriate for the person in that is it the right gendered bed for that person because in mental health units sometimes it's a co you're sleeping with someone else also in the room with a roommate and is your level of psychiatric need appropriate for that unit because mental health units try to have you know, a, a, the right mix of people they can't have too many people who are acutely psychotic for example 
because it overwhelms the unit. So it, there's lots of balances that are in play here. So Suzanne Love, I am inspired to hear about how there are protocols and how there is treatment available. But the testimony that you just gave before the Massachusetts legislature really was about the lack of care, the closing of beds, of of, of facilities and beds here in Western Massachusetts, which makes mental health care so much more difficult to access. Would you please share with us what committee you were testifying in front of and what you were telling the uh, senators and representatives in particular with regard to mental health care services and lack thereof here in Western Massachusetts. Talk to us, please. There is a trend towards for-profit health care, which I think is, is inappropriate on many levels because health care shouldn't be a profit-making enterprise. There's already way too much money in health care, especially for the top executives who make just ridiculous amounts of money. Sometimes more than 100 times more than the lowest paid employee. And that's a separate bill that we have before the state this year. But Bay State recently, Bay State Health, based in Springfield, owns Bay State Medical Center, also owns Bay State Noble in Westfield, Bay State Franklin Medical Center in Greenfield, Bay State Wing in Palmer, and several area medical practices. They, and they have a mental health unit at their own hospital, too. They, four years ago, decided to close their, all their regional hospital mental health units, so taking care away from local people and putting it in one central hospital in Holyoke, partnering with a for-profit health care system, which means they don't have to take Medicare and Medicaid. They can pick who they take and... Our concern is people aren't going to get the length of time of care that they need. And also, Greenfield to Holyoke is pretty difficult to get the right public transportation to be able to get there for families to see people who need some hospitalized care. And as we all know, outside support is so important to anyone leaving hospital care for any reason, but especially mental health. So... That was what my testimony was about, was that hospital care has to stay local. There has to be enough beds. I think it's great. If they want to open this this other mental health hospital in Holyoke, great. But please don't take away beds to open that. We need the community care beds as well. And frankly, based on how long people sometimes wait in the emergency room, days, to get a bed in a psychiatric hospital, the community would would really benefit from having more hospital beds, not less hospital beds. Could you go back for us, please? What mental health facility has been closed or has been closed recently here in Western Massachusetts? And what is it that you are asking or the Massachusetts Nurses Association is asking the legislature to do about this? Um, we... So we have seen the closure of, so Bay State is about to close Bay State Noble Mental Health Unit and the Mental Health Unit at Wing. They thankfully, and with great relief, decided to keep the one at Franklin Medical Center in Greenfield open. So the one at Bay State Franklin in Greenfield is not closing, and 
part of that is because we are a much more rural entity. We're far enough from Springfield that they were able to take that piece of the agreement they, that Bay State made with the for-profit health center out of the out of the equation and keep that one open. So that's just a huge, huge relief, honestly. And but they but recently there was um, Providence Healthcare, which was in Holyoke, closed and was replaced by a for-profit entity, Mira Vista. And there's another one called Terra Vista in Devons, I believe, that op- that opened up. And these are for-profit entities. So that affects care in a couple of ways. One is they don't have to staff 24 hours a day. So they'll only take people from our department if we can get them there by 4.30, which can be really challenging. So that means people are staying in our ER longer. And there's just not as much – it's not as, as – as, it's not as easy and graceful for people to get into a for-profit organization than it is to get into a non-profit. If someone appears uh, in a mental health crisis at, uh, at the Franklin Medical Center, uh, Bay State Franklin, um, and there is no place for this person, there are no beds available locally, uh, what happens? They stay in the emergency department until a bed is found. And it can be it can be hours, it can be overnight, it can be days. Um, it's been for the geriatric population, especially hard to find placement for because there's so few geriatric psychiatric beds. It can be weeks. I think our longest for children, it can be weeks. The children's beds are so scarce in this state. It's it's really upsetting that these kids are in our ER for so long. And one of the state solutions was that all the community hospitals had to make a separate mental health pod, a separate area from the rest of the ER population. And, to, and so we did that. We met that state requirement. We built this extra sectioned off unit behind a staff access only locked door. But to me, that's just a band-aid. That's not really fixing the problem of we need psych beds. We don't need a separate ER. We don't need to segregate these people. We need psychiatric beds for these people. Where they're going to, where they're going to meet with a psychiatrist. Where they're going to meet with groups. Where they're going to be able to have the mental health care. So it's just stalling to be stuck in the emergency department. It does strike me that for a person who is having a mental health crisis to be stuck in an emergency room, even if it's cordoned off in some way from the rest of the ER, is about the worst place you could put somebody for hours or days waiting for another placement. Uh, Yeah, they're literally lying on their beds watching TV or playing cards. If it's a kid, we try to, and it's the school year, we ask the parents to bring in academic work for them, and we, we, help, we try to make a schedule for them. We don't let them just lay in bed all day watching TV. We have them get up at a certain time. We have them turn off the TV, do their schoolwork and all of that. But we're nurses in an emergency room. We're, being a teacher is a specialty that you have a lot of training for. We're not, we're not educators. And so we're now we're in the position of making sure these kids are doing their schoolwork right. So it's, it's just, 
it's a very strange situation that, that we've gotten ourselves into in the mental health care in, in this country. We are speaking with Suzanne Love. She is an emergency department nurse at Bay State Franklin Medical Center. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more specifically about what it is that the Massachusetts legislature can do to make mental health services available in western Massachusetts, given what has happened in terms of closing down those services in recent years. We'll be right back. The eagle picks my eyes. The worm, he licks my bone. Feels so suicidal, just like More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. You want to feel important. You want to be part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way, too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. But our part-time service in the Army National Guard means we get to be more. When our communities are in need, We get the chance to stand up and do something about it. We get to serve in our own region and help the people we call neighbors. From the coasts of Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. The small communities of Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. To the dense forests of New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York, and historic Washington, D.C. We are here for our hometowns. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the Valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Suzanne Love, who is an emergency department nurse, a spokesperson for the Massachusetts Nurses Association at a hearing recently giving testimony to the Joint Committee on Essential Services about a bill relative to stopping the closing of essential services at medical facilities in the Commonwealth. Could you tell us a bit more about what the bill is trying to accomplish and what we can do to be supportive of efforts to secure and maintain essential medical services in our communities, particularly mental health care? Help us out. Help us understand that. Suzanne Love, please. So this bill is titled An Act Relative to the Closing of Hospital Essential Services. And when I gave testimony, I was part of a four-hour opportunity for people to speak to legislators, and it included some legislators talking to 
their fellow legislators about the importance of this. So we were looking specifically at mental health beds and birthing center beds. So, for example, Lemons is trying to close their birthing unit right now. I was hearing about that on Monday. So this bill before the House and Senate would extend the notice period the Department of Public Health is given in advance of these units closing currently at six months, and we would like it to be a year. So there's enough time to really build up the community support. Six months goes by pretty fast. Um, and it would also require hospital proposing closure or discontinuation of services to provide evidence of having notified and provided the opportunity for comment from affected municipalities before it closes. So sometimes it just closes. When I was hearing this testimony from other hospitals, it was really pretty moving. Some some hospitals, knowing they had a large population of non-English speakers, still had sent out notice of closure of OB units to in English only to these people who only speak Hmong or only speak Chinese, etc. And so they had no way of understanding what this document was. Um, it would also instruct the Attorney General to seek an injunction to maintain the essential service for the duration of the notice period and require the Attorney General to sign on any closure or discontinuation of services deemed essential. So it would have to be approved of by the Attorney General if Department of Public Health deems this service is an essential service. And I argue mental health care is an essential service. It's part of the overall well-being of someone. Um, also prohibit the hospital from eligibility from application for licensure or expansion for a period of three years from the date the service is discontinued or until the essential health service is restored or until DPH is satisfied with a modified plan. So what that's looking at is at the same time, some of these hospitals are closing mental health facilities as, as part of their hospital services they're asking for expansion of surgery centers. And that's because hospitals make a lot more money on surgery than they do on mental health. And my personal belief is part of that is because a lot of people who have mental health needs, and this is, so what I see in our department in a community hospital setting where I really know people who need mental health care many times, they have some chronic conditions, they often need some help, is these people can't always work because of their mental health condition. Therefore, they're on Medicaid and Medicare. Therefore, hospital reimbursements aren't as high from those federally and state-funded healthcare systems than they are from for-profit. So, for example, I'm getting my knee replaced. The hospital's going to make a lot of money on my knee replacement, more than they make on mental health care. We're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking with Suzanne Love, emergency department nurse, spokesperson for the Massachusetts Nurses Association, speaking about the bill to bill an act relative to the closing of essential services in medical facilities. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your testimony and your efforts on our behalf. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you.
listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Recent flooding hit the Western Mass area hard, but it hit our most vulnerable community members the hardest. People living in tents along the river have been displaced, and the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts will receive fewer donations from local farms around the harvest season. Executive Director Andrew Morehouse. We will see a dip in, in local agriculture, either donated or, or that we can buy because of the flooding. We don't know how much yet, uh, but we definitely are going to see a decline. In a typical year, the Food Bank purchases around a half million pounds of local produce with money from the State Department of Agricultural Resources Mass Grow Program. Those same farms usually donate another half million pounds of food. But since the recent flood events, many of those partnering farms have less local produce to offer. Of the dozens of farms the food bank purchases from, Morehouse said at least seven have been impacted by the heavy rain this year. A Hilltown Community Health Center is one step closer to a new center at Smith Vocational. The organization received almost $1 million toward the project from the Executive Office of Health and Human Services. The Smith Vocational Health Center will cost approximately $2.5 million to build and will be one of 42 school-based health centers in the state. The community has shown support for the families in the emergency shelter at the Days Inn Hotel in Greenfield by providing an abundance of donations. The city announced yesterday they are temporarily pausing the acceptance of new donations due to space limitations and will notify the public as soon as they can accept donations again. Partly to mostly sunny today, lower humidity, warm, a high of 84 to 88. Evening temperatures will be in the 70s and low 80s with scattered clouds tonight and an overnight low of 58 to 64. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, slight chance of an afternoon shower, 84 to 88. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. Are you tired of living with chronic pain, knee pain, joint pain? Listen carefully, because now there are new regenerative treatments now available here. QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, is now open, giving lasting relief to people with joint pain with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. Regenerative medicine uses highly concentrated healing agents from your own body. These powerful treatments can restore and repair damaged tissue in your achy joints so you can move again without pain. QC Kinetics has over 100 clinics nationwide wide and has treated thousands of patients with incredible success. Their advanced protocols are an exciting way to manage pain from arthritis and injury without surgery or steroids or pain pills. If you've got pain in your knees, shoulders, hip, or back, you need to check out these new treatments. They can actually help your body restore and repair itself. Call now to schedule your free consultation with the local medical professionals at QC Kinetics. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Four five zero. 
you're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Every summer, there is magic that happens in this region. (laughs) Magic. I am not exaggerating. I am not making this up. There is magic that comes from Double Edge Theater. And we have with us today in the studio representatives from that magical place in Asheville, Hannah Jarrell, who is an ensemble member of Double Edge Theater, and Mika Farias Gomez, who is a musician, and Carlos Uriana, who is the longtime co-artistic director of Double Edge Theater. Double Edge Theater, for those of you who have not been there, you have got to do yourself the favor of going. It is magic. Uh, Hannah Jarrell, let me start with you. What is the production that is ongoing at Double Edge now? We are opening tonight the Hidden Territories of the Bacchae. It is our take from the, drawn from the original play written by Euripides uh, for us. Tell, tell us the title again, please. The Hidden Territories of the Bacchae. Okay. And for us, it's an important question. In the original play, the Bacchae don't speak. But for us, so what would happen when the Bacchae do speak? And we have many voices in song and in and, and poetry that are speaking from the Bacchae themselves, many voices of women all around the world. And can you tell us what the, what the arc of the story is? Yes, we meet Dion, um, Dionysus, who is the god who's the child of Zeus and Semele, who is returning to Thebes and bringing the Bacchae, calling the women all around the world. Um, so it's set from the ancient Greek play, and we see the Dionysus see them returning and calling the Bacchae to come to lead their own rites and rituals and celebration in temple and across all of our fields and streams at, at the theater, bringing the audience with them in the journey. Well, I want to know for our, I want to share with our listeners what that means, what the journey is that happens at Double Edge, because the audience moves. The scenes change because there are many different places on the campus. There are waterfalls. There are just the most extraordinary, beautiful places and and streams and fields. And it all changes because, well, you don't have to change the scenes because we move to the new places. Uh, Carlos Oriana, the co-artistic director, maybe you can tell us about some of the scenes in the current play. The the scenes are... uh somehow crafted around the nature, what the nature mm-hmm. is. So we are in a place uh, on 116 <clears throat> Western Mass uh, in Ashfield, and the place is what it is. There's a brook, there's a pond, there's, there are birds, there's a blue heron visiting, and everything becomes part of that. Um, we have a very rehearsed and trained, uh, we have a very strong group of actors performance, musicians, uh, set designers. And the set is not really a set, it's nature. You So the scenes happen in nature. Uh, we do a little bit of a tweaking here and there so the actors can reach, but uh, the actor accommodates themselves to that. So what happens is that you as an audience, you're moving, and at the same time, the you know, the clouds are there, there's dusk approaching, um, and all those playing, we we have lights, theater lights, but we are also playing with the natural light that is fading away. And then there's a beautiful scene inside of a barn. 
which this year is all the roots of trees that were derooted and they're upside down. Uh, and the the performers are are, are there they, with their costumes, um, somehow evoking all this or uh, di- in a dialogue with this natural world. The scenery is extraordinary. The scenes are extraordinary. I remember one of the performances at Double Edge where the people are coming, the actors are coming down the field. And as opposed to being in a theater where you sort of this is make-believe, and there it is. I mean, it is make-believe, but there it is. And they are, in fact, approaching. And it is just so poignant and so intense. I'd like to ask you, Amika Farias Gomez, what's it like to be in this play? Oh, wow. For me, like, I'm I'm from Argentina. I want to say that because we're all a lot of women from all around. And it's my 10-year coming here, being a collaborator, an artistic collaborator, for me, is super challenge. It's always beautiful and challenge in the same time. I will say for for an artist, an experience like this is super powerful and it gives you a very enormous platform to construct your own art. I will say that in the the proposal of the double-edged theater, the proposal of the director, Stacy Klein, the artistic director, is always pushed to you to give your best, give your full, and be in contact and working with the nature and with the weather, not like against the weather, uh, with the weather, mm-hmm. is a super channel for any artist or any person who really want work with her, himself, their self, and with the other ones. So, Mika Farias Gomez, I'd be interested in hearing more about the international collaboration. Mm-hmm. Do you say there are uh, artistic collaborators who you work with from many countries and many places? Tell us more about that experience. Oh, oh, it, it was my experience being in other places. No, your experience the, working with them here. Okay, thank, thank you, thank you. Um, my experience uh, working here is. Can you tell me what is the question exactly? Because sorry about my English is not so good. Well, so. I, I think your English is excellent. <laughs> okay, okay. I really appreciate. It. What What I'm asking is, yes. you work with many different uh, collaborators, yes. many different artists, yes, from many countries. Okay, got it. Tell me about that. Uh, well, it's it's amazing. It's super. I think you grown a lot when you have to work and you put yourself together with people who have and bring so many different things. Even not just in the you you, ha, you have a you have to living with the people. You have to share a lot of hours, a lot of rehearsal, a lot of things, and it's um, it's wonderful because it moves moves you from your comfortable place because you have to understand and you have to see the other person who comes to other place with different costumbres habits habits with and that is challenge too but it gives you an opportunity to learn much more in these last two years uh, can you talk about different countries that yes from from where from China, well, Bulgaria, um, England, uh, one more. I, I'm probably Niger- f- Nigeria. Nigeria. Um, and all these, all these 
artists are at Double Edge working on this production. Yes. Let, let me turn back to Carlos Uriana, who is the co-artistic director at Double Edge Theater in Asheville, and ask you, why did you, or, or and why did Double Edge pick this particular production to produce? Why? What well, is it, What is it about this story that lends itself so much to the... Uh, to what Double Edge is and what it does? It's a wonderful question because when when Hannah was talking about the Bakai, I thought, well, how many people know what the Bakai was? I don't. I didn't. Right. And I'd like to know more. I, and I didn't. And I, I mean, I, I heard of it, but I didn't know until I started working. So it's been 64 years for me until I learned something about this. The Bakai is a group of women in Greece, in a, in a period of time, Thebes is a, is a city, the city of Thebes, T-H-E-B-E-S, where they decide to take action on their own freedom and their own rights. So the rights of the, 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 the political rights, but also their rights as their ritual, and do their ritual and stop being somehow um, caged by the society at the time. Uh, Euripides tells the story of this king that, that is an autocratic team, a king that decides to stop them. I mean, all these things, you can, you can see that it's very pertinent to the times we're living today. And is that why it was selected as being the, the and I guess as you could back, let me ask you this. Double Edge often does productions that go on for a year or two. Yeah. You do them. Is this the first year of this production or did you do it last year? And why was why was it selected in particular? I mean, and did you have this political time very much in mind or was it coincidence? Not coincidence at all. <laughs> this this time, this world and what in our connection to, I mean, the climate crisis to so how do we connect with nature how do we reclaim how um the movement of rematriation that is important this is the second year of of continuing this research for us uh, we began last year which was double edge's 40th anniversary and also in this uh we are hearkening to the history of double edge as well as the future and in, in our communities as well, in uh, 1982, Stacy first directed Rites, R-I-T-E-S, which was drawn from an adaptation of the Bacchae. Um, so we return to this material in, in this world that we're in right now, in this political climate that we're in right now for our 40th anniversary, and then also felt that it was important to continue in this research and continue in, in centering these voices and this um, contemplation. <laughs> I think it is important at, at this time to to understand that, or or at least I understand. Let me put it in a different way. I understand that it is at this time we need to really reconsider our all of our cultural structures in all the countries. Um, we are we are, you know, if you open a, a newspaper today, you'll see that we are in a pretty apocalyptic scene. Like any any front page of any newspaper. You know, it's, it's about war and the, the, the disaster of climate. And this is a reality. Uh, we just had the floods uh, here in, in uh, Northeast. Um, it, it, it's all over the world. Um, there's something about our industrial culture. There's something about our patriarchy. 
and the way we structure our, our thinking and our learning. And I'm talking here from a perspective of a, I consider myself a white man, uh, um, although I understand that, that in the U.S. I'm a person yes. of color. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but in my country, I'm part of the, of the descendants of the, of the conquistadors. Uh, all of that have somehow, at, at least we need to question it. I'm, I think that there is a lot of failure that needs to be re-addressed urgently. And um, we thought that, that this, this material from Euripides is being exiled at, at, the, at, at its time for writing these things, is being kicked out of Greece for writing things that, you know, 2,500 years later we're suffering of the same problem. Tell me about how you bring the story alive how you make it so personal to the audience members. How do you make us feel this? Because Double Edge does that. Tell us about the art of creating this story and bringing the audience in in such a personal and meaningful way. I think one of the things that's really important is um, our research and Stacy, the way Stacy leads and directs is that we are deeply in our own personal investigation and of ourselves in this world. I think also another important part of that is the the voices and the music. Mika, if you want to speak yeah. to Yeah, absolutely. Stacy have um, that vision of the really want you bring your own story to the big story, let's say, all the with the all the context you have and I think if each of us these multiple women with these multiple voices all around the world bring their own stories, their personal stories, actually. Uh, it is impossible you, you, you don't feel nothing because I think when we share our own, our own stories, real stories, it, you, you, can f you can feel that. You ca I can feel that with my partners coming, uh, singing, doing her songs, bringing her song from her heritage, her stories. I think part of that is one of the things you are talking about, feel. I, al I, my, I also would think that there's a lot of thought that goes into who is saying what in what scene when you're in yeah. front of the river, when you're by Absolutely. the field, when you're near the pond, which is a large pond with all the beautiful uh, woods around it. Um, there are all these scenes, and I think there must be some extraordinary amount of thought and detail that goes into how you bring the play to those places and to that feeling. And I'd appreciate if all three of you would... Give us your thoughts about that. Actually, we'll take a quick break and we come back. We're going to hear the answer. Stay with us. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Who's your healthcare hero? Let the world know. Business West and the Healthcare News welcome nominations for the 7th Annual Healthcare Heroes Award. You know someone who's improving healthcare in our region? Nominate them now. On the front lines or behind the scenes, in the hospital, administrative office, lab, neighborhood clinic, or medical office, healthcare professionals are making real contributions to our quality of life. It's time to recognize their efforts. Go to businesswest.com or healthcarenews.com and nominate your healthcare hero. The deadline, July 29th. 
What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. Our beloved local hero farms. Way too much rain, wiping out crops, wiping out entire farms. Our local hero farms matter too much to let them go down. We're all together on a rescue mission. Go to the Help Flooded Farms page at the CESA Local Hero website. Support a specific farm or donate to CESA's Emergency Farm Fund. Local Hero Farms. Think what life would be like without them. Go to the CESA website, buylocalfood.org, to the Help Flooded Farms page, and kick in what you can. You're listening yeah, to Talk the Talk I mean, with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with three members of the community of Double Edge Theater, Hannah Jarrell, who is an ensemble member, and Mika Farias-Gomez, who is an artistic collaborator, and Carlos Uriana, who is the co-artistic director of Double Edge Theater. The production being produced beginning this evening, I believe, The Hidden Territories of the Bacai. There are, amazingly, tickets available, and if you've not been to Double Edge Theater, you want to do this. You want to see the magic. So let me turn back to, uh, if, I, if I might, uh, uh, Hannah, Hannah Jarrell, how do people get tickets? And if they're not tickets, how do you get on the waiting list? Because this is always full. The fact that there are tickets, take advantage of this. Yes. You can go to our website, doubleedgetheater.org. That's uh, double edge. We are the R-E spelling of theater. And um, to get on the wait list, if there aren't tickets available, you can email us at tickets at doubleedgetheater.org or give us a call, 413-628-0277. And we're talking about the voices in the hidden ter- uh, territories of the Bach. I wish you know that Buzz Eisenberg's voice not with us today. He is away. We miss him. Uh, he will be back tomorrow. I'd like to ask you all three, if you would pre- briefly tell us, how do you bring the scenery, the, the, the amazing nature of double-edged theater into the play itself. Let, let me start with you, if I, if I might. Carlos? Um, what comes to my mind when you ask me that question is that we spend hours, each one of us, and also as a group together in different locations inside of the farm. So that we're talking about a stage that is about a couple of acres, two acres or maybe two and a half. Um, uh, and in we were mentioning earlier the different sites. So as an actor, I go and I, I either try texts from, from Euripides, from that play or other places, sometimes other poets, or bring 
whatever is in the thematic and try them and I uh, more than try them as an actor I train physically train in that particularly like if I go to the brook I train in the water. And you get in the water. I get in the water. And it's cold. Mm -hmm. It's cold. It's fine. It's cold. <laughs> it's fine. For the summer, it's super. It's good, yeah. It's cold. Sometimes it's very good. If you have arthritis like I do, it's very, um, it's very relaxing. Well, let me ask the same question to you, to you if I might. Mika, Virius yes. Gomez, how do you bring yourself into the, the brook, into the pond, into the fields? Mm. And, and how do you do that? I think it's uh, well. I I'm agree with what Carlos said. We we have a lot of a lot of training alone and together, in all that in all the spaces. So that's a, a very important part. It's not just you go one time and that's it. We have a lot. We do a lot of work actually to go to that place, um, be in contact with the nature all the days. Even if you're just walking to go to the kitchen, even, that is part of this. It's day by day by day being there in the place. I live in a city. I'm from Buenos Aires. I All my days happen in a city, so I have a relation with the city, actually. But when I come here and I, I, I'm all the days in the nature, training, singing, that start to be part of my of mine. Of mine, so I think kind of, kind of this, that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I know. I understand <laughs> yeah. because there's something about double edge that after you've seen the production, and you're walking back to your car mm -hmm. with the people who've been there, it's kind of like you've just shared something magical together. There is for that moment mm -hmm. that sense of community. Yeah, really quite extraordinary. I w would like to turn in the few minutes we have left to this question of community because Double Edge does a lot in the community and for the community. And for those who don't know, I'd appreciate it if you would share with us what it is. Let me turn back to you, Hannah Jarrell. In the community, Double Edge functions uh, all year round. There's lots that it does. So tell us. We are, each year is, is highly changing, responding to the artists that we are working with. We are uh, bringing residencies. We have created training programs, community sessions where uh, people can come and try things and, and witness and sing together or fly together. Or um, We are also bringing a lot of artists to Ashfield and to the region that are not just staying at Double Edge, but who are becoming a part of the community as well. We also have programming that, that rotate bringing world-class artists to Double Edge, and we're really honored to be able to host and bring them. Uh, we're very excited coming up this year, the 12-foot uh, puppet Little Amal, who is a Syrian refugee, 12-year-old girl, um, will be coming to us in September. Um, so that's for something that's coming up that we're very excited to be offering our community and also in conjunction with our, our partners, the Okateo Cultural Center. And you bring students to Double Edged, and does Double Edge go into the schools too? We do, absolutely. We've worked, we have uh, worked with emerging artists, youth artists who have, we've worked in their schools. They've come to us and worked with us. One of our collaborators this summer is an alum of a, uh, we worked with his high school in Springfield mm -hmm. and continue to do so. Um, so it's eight it, years now. Yeah, mm -hmm. we worked with Mika at a, in a previous project in Boston with high school students there and then here in Ashfield. And some of them became artists. One thing that you just mentioned, and we just have a minute or so left, but I would like to ask you about this. You mentioned uh, the, the physicality of, of the acting, and there's a lot that happens in the barn about that. Is that true for this production in the hidden territories of the Bacchae? 
Tell us about that because it's 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 just really what happens in the ropes and the rings is amazing. Mm-hmm. So one of you, tell us about that. Well, absolutely. We, we create from listening and being in nature and sharing song. And we also create from our training, which is researching. Uh, it's using gesture and movement and dance and what are the different vehicles that can help us in storytelling and creating imagery and metaphor. Uh, that's, that's We love to fly and we love to bring audience with us in flight. Um, what would you all add? I guess the question is really, we just have about 15, 20 seconds apiece. Why do you love Double Edge? Let me ask you that. Carlos? I think it's a, a, it's a home for um, all of us. Like I came, I can speak from my own. I'm also from Argentina, and I came to a place that uh, opened the arms and gave me a, a home. It's a home for that. Mika? Yeah, it's like a sacred, sacred, sacred place. Sacred. And share, and a sharing place. Sharing. Sharing place. And Hannah? It is living in art and living culture, connecting with community. Tickets are available at Double Edge Theater, re.org. The Hidden Territories of the Bacchae opens this evening at Double Edge in Ashfield. Do yourself the favor and see this play, Double Edge Theater, re.org. We thank you also very much, Hannah, Mika, Carlos. Break a leg. Thank you very much. Gracias. Gracias. Father abuses, sing for me. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. Visit our website at cnam.org. Call 413-587-0084. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com.